Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Melanin Margin, the weekly chat show where conversations about race are never off the table. We're your hosts, Quaviandre Williams. And Daquan Wilson. So let's get into this week's conversation. What's hot on the table this week? Recently, a petition has been going around social media calling for the end of gendered performance categories during the Tony Awards. The petition, which uses the hashtag Time's Up Tony Awards, demands that the Broadway League, American Theatre Wing, and Tony Awards, quote, make immediate efforts to engage members of the queer and trans theater community to discuss the ways in which we can equitably recognize outstanding performances in every Broadway season, issue a public apology to queer and trans members of the theater industry who are currently or have previously been forced into erasure by the means of these outdated award categories and recognition practices, and agree to contribute a portion of ticket and broadcast revenues from the 2023 Tony Awards to charitable organizations fighting for LGBTQ rights, end quote. These demands came shortly after trans non-binary performer Justin David Sullivan, who uses pronouns he, she, and they, opted out from consideration for the Tony Awards because of the gender categories. So with that being said, Andre, do you think gender categories for awards are exclusive or even problematic? Um, there are so many levels to this conversation that we can't even fully break down in this episode, but I'm going to try my best to articulate my thoughts on this issue. So please bear with me. Um, I think that gendered categories are unfortunately like many things rooted in patriarchy. Um, the reason gendered categories were created in the first place was both to other the achievements of cis women from cis men and as a way to recognize and uplift women. On the one hand, we know that many misogynistic men think that the accomplishments of women are lesser than men or not as important as men. They recognize that a woman won a sports trophy, but they also believe that her talent is only valued in comparison to other women. So they don't see her as being on the same level as a talented man playing in that same sport. And it can, it can and has been incredibly demeaning to many women to be called, you know, an actress in the film industry. So much so that many of them took a stand against being called that in favor of simply being called an actor. In the same vein, these categories force the patriarchal systems in our society to recognize and celebrate the talent of women in these award shows as well. To completely erase the gendered categories in favor of recognizing people with gender neutral titles could inadvertently give cis straight white men another unfair advantage against marginalized communities in these award spaces because they would be celebrated more. Then that also breeds the possible erasure of award shows that were specifically created for marginalized communities. I can almost hear the arguments now with some white people uh, who want BET awards to nominate more white people or the queer tees to nominate more straight people and so on and so forth. Do I think that the gender categories are problematic? Yes. Do I think they exclude people who are differing in gender identities? 100%. But in order, to, in order for that change to be truly inclusive, we'd have to get rid, we'd have to go to the root of the issue because if we don't, the fix could only be like a band-aid because after we fix that, then it would be the fact that only white LGBTQIA people would be getting recognized more than LGBTQIA people of other racial identities, which is already a prominent issue in our community. That, there's just, this is a really hard topic to discuss because there are so many factors to consider because oppressions can compound each other. There's so many that say that these award shows should recognize people based on their talent and impact alone. But that's all subjective to the awards committee idea of what impact and talent look like to them. The reason the BET Awards was created at all was to celebrate Black people in entertainment, despite 
Um, cause, because despite our talent, we were not being recognized much by major award shows. The reason why the GLAD and the Queer Tees were created was because the talents of LGBTQIA people were not recognized as prominently in these award shows and the list goes on and on and on. The solution to this problem is so much more complicated than it looks because of how fucked up our society is. But some of the ways I think that we could work on fixing this is to start at the tippy top, which would be looking at who is on these awards committees. Who are the people creating the categories? Who are the people selecting who gets nominated and who wins these awards? You know, do these committees have people on them from varying marginalized communities? Do these communities have um, do these committees have varying age ranges so that both the old beliefs on what is considered talent don't overshadow new beliefs when selecting nominees and winners? And also, what are the ways in which they can incorporate new language that can help diversify and include all people so that everyone feels both adequately recognized and respected? But Daquan, what about you? I mean, do you think these categories are problematic? I think they're definitely outdated. It's one of these things where I definitely see the purpose of having these gender categories because yeah. like you said, if there wasn't necessarily an actress category, a lot of time the award would just be going to white men, period, mm. point blank. But we also know that even with an actress category, the awards are mostly going to white women. <laughs> and so there's so many yeah. layers to this conversation that I don't think that just simply changing the label is going to solve everything. Like you said, we need to go down to the root of the issues because even when we have awards programs like the Grammys, which has less awards that are gendered, we still see plenty of issues. Like we just <laughs> talked about the Grammys, what, a week or two ago, mm -hmm. something like that, because the root of the issue is not necessarily the words that are being used. Although mm -hmm. they may be outdated and a little problematic, mm -hmm. the biggest problem about all of these award shows and how they categorize things and who wins these awards is the people who are on the committees. Yeah. Because oftentimes the committees look very much one way. It is old, white, cisgendered, heterosexual men. Mm -hmm. And I do think that especially in theater, it could be great to have, you know, more representation for queer and trans and non-binary performers, because let's be real, the queer community, you know, pays the bills. They keep the lights on for the queer community because, <laughs> exactly. you know, it's, it's so important to a lot yeah. of queer people. Um, so I think that this is a very multifaceted issue. I mm -hmm. don't think that there's one solution. I do think that I do hope that this petition does spark some conversations going forward and that there can be a lot more conversations about what equity means in this space, mm -hmm. how we can make sure that we are representing all communities and making sure we are being inclusive of all communities mm -hmm. and get to that desired you know, outcome. But that doesn't you know, start and stop with just a simple label change. Yeah, and I think that positive and accurate representation of all marginalized communities is more necessary than ever in this world because the lack thereof has been the reason why so many marginalized communities are still feared, stereotyped, and murdered in our society. Um, with the LGBTQIA community in particular, the wave of anti-trans and anti-gay legislation is far from a like new fight for us. It is imperative that organizations take a stand with us to show that recognizing and accepting our existence will only help create a better world for each generation. Um, we have to remember this and know it to be true. Hate never takes a break, ever. Unfortunately, no matter how far we progress, people will always find something else to hate because that is just the nature of evil. Religion, racism, patriarchy have done some near irreparable damage to our society that I don't think that we will live to see fully undone. But just because project, you know, just because progress is an 
ever evolving journey we are trying to work toward, it doesn't mean that we just give up or pretend that bad things aren't happening. Like the current legislation in Tennessee is a major hit against the LGBTQIA plus community. And it's baseless and it's filled with nothing but total and utter bullshit that uses the guise of protecting kids to hide the fact that people just don't like LGBTQI people to exist. That's all it is. It's because our natural, factual existence in this world conflicts with their supernatural, opinion-based, religious belief. The level of arrogance you have to have to use your religion as a cover for your bigotry is wretched. But even worse, for you to use your religion to criminalize a person for being who they are is, in your own words, truly demonic. We all know. We have all known for a very, very long time that the people who have done the most damage to our society and to our children has never been the LGBTQIA plus community. It's been the church, the church that held the crusades and killed people for simply believing differently than they do. The curse, you know, the church that has countless cases of pedophilia within its walls across time and the church that found ways to help white society excuse the enslavement of a race of people. And that's just the top. That's just the top of the iceberg. But if we compare the crimes of the church to the crimes of the LGBTQI community, baby, the LGBTQI community doesn't even come close. It doesn't even come close to those crimes. But what about you, Daquan? Um, with the way of anti-gay legislation, anti-trans stuff, um, is it important to have representation in the arts and to have organizations take a stand with the LGBTQI rights movement? Oh, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought up the legislation and bill that passed in Tennessee because that is so important to this conversation. And I think, you know, it's a bill that has a lot of magnitude. If yeah. you don't know about it, basically Tennessee passed a bill where they outlaw drag performances in public. Places that, venues that have drag shows are considered adult cabarets which means that they could lose their liquor license. They can only be able to allow certain people into the building. And even things like Pride, since Pride happens on public space, drag performers may not be allowed to perform in these spaces. And if they do, they could be hit with fines. They could be arrested. They could even catch a felony charge. And it's also important to note how how sneaky these Republicans think they are because <laughs> they word things so vaguely mm -hmm. in terms of this and so bill insidiously because, too insidious. and insidious, insidiously because they want to encompass a lot more than just drag queens. Mm -hmm. They make it vague so that anybody who puts on clothing that does not fit their gender is at risk of being arrested, fined, and catching a felony charge. And mm -hmm. who determines what their gender is? Let's be real. They're not going to ask somebody, oh, what gender are you? They're mm -hmm. going to ask somebody what they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. They're going to check their records. They're going to check their sex characteristics mm -hmm. and make a decision on whether that they are performing in drag. And so that can affect a lot of trans people, especially trans people who do not pass, a lot of non-binary people. And even going back to this conversation about the Tony Awards, that can affect theater. There are mm -hmm. plenty of different performances, plays and theater performances where there are characters who are in drag, who Pinky are boots. transgender, mm -hmm or they have roles where it can be played by a person of any gender. So you can mm -hmm. have anybody performing a role that may be seen as being traditionally male or traditionally female. And so these performances, when they go on tours, they're not gonna be allowed to perform in a lot of these states. And let's be real, a new state is popping up with laws like these so often. And I think that it's important to have some type of, you know, community building and advocacy and organizing going on because 
we can't just live in the kind of progressive bubbles, the gay meccas. We can't, yes, theater is big in New York or LA, but these Broadway um, performances do have tours. And even beyond those tours, there are queer people who are in the South, who are in these states, not even just the South, in the Midwest, in the West, in the North, all over this country, there are queer people in states where they are passing these anti-trans and anti-queer legislation who deserve to see themselves represented. And I am a firm believer that the arts and culture are one of the biggest things to push culture and to push change. Like we even think about the 1960s at how many artists were on the front lines of a lot of these movements who are not only creating art surrounding the movement to get information around, but who were also on the streets protesting, who were literally being monitored by the FBI because they thought the arts were a threat to what we're doing. And even if you look at a lot of history of dictatorships and fascist governments, they go after the arts very quickly. They go after burning books, they go after banning books, They go after trying to dismantle any type of artistic expression because it's those artistic expressions that cause people to think about things and challenge the way in which we think about the world. And so they don't want people to challenge the status quo. And so they try to disrupt any type of artistic expression and creativity possible. So absolutely, organization, Organizations and especially organizations in the arts should be taking a stand, should be uh, allying themselves with the LGBTQ plus community and making sure that people see themselves, people have representations and that we are fighting for the rights of people to simply exist. Yeah, I, I fully agree with what you said. I think that it's it's such a dangerous thing that's what's happening right now. And it's not just with, you know, the anti-gay and anti-trans legislation. It's, you know, critical race theory. It's racism and stuff like that. The fact that Ron DeSantis might actually try to run for president in Florida may be the blueprint of how he wants to make all 50 states look like and stuff like that. So it's just, you really have to, I think that people really need to, take a moment to really understand that, you know, I know we've said this before on the show a lot and, you know, I reference the quote a lot, but you know, that the idea that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere is very real. And so when you are someone who thinks, okay, I'm black, but I'm straight. So I can fuck them gay people. I'm going to be all right because I'm black and straight. It's like, no, no, baby. Once they're done with us, you're next. Like if you are not a white, straight, cis, heterosexual man, you are next up. You are next up. And I think that it's it's really, it's really, it's really hard to see that we can't seem to look past, you know, what we're dealing with to understand that even though this may not affect us yet, does not mean it won't affect us down the line. So when I saw, I think we talked about support too on the show, you know, when the Roe versus Wade happened, that hit me hard. Like, and I do not have a uterus, you know, but the fact that this was overturned and that states can literally say that you cannot get an abortion anymore, that people with uteruses do not have autonomy over their body, it is, it was incredibly heartbreaking to hear because I knew that this is about us too. This is about everybody. Is This is about anybody who is not a straight, white, cis, heterosexual man. And so I think that people need to get out of their little bubble of, well, I'm all right. Even white women. Oh, you're all right now. But once they get everybody else out the way, best believe that you're going to be next. Best believe your rights are going to be next up. Once they get everybody else out of the way, trust and believe that you will be next up. And I think that that's kind of the thing that we're running into a lot is that people are too focused on this is my issue fuck everybody else's issues this is what i'm dealing with we need to get this fixed first and as long as this is okay i'm all right versus being like hold on if they fucking with you and i don't look like them either oh i must be getting fucked with next the legendary singer songwriter patty labelle recently revealed on the jennifer hudson show that she is open to the idea of dating After being asked by Hudson, LaBelle responded, quote, well, sort of, 
kinda. I was married for 32 years to a wonderful man and we are still friends, good friends. And so I think in my life, I need to find happiness for myself other than what I had back in the day with him, which was wonderful. But I'm too good to be solo, end quote. LaBelle went on further to reveal that she, quote, has a nice person in mind. I really do, but that's my personal business, end quote. So, Daquan, do you think it is ever too late to fall in love? I don't think so. I think that love is one of those things where it happens when it happens and there's no age restriction when it comes to love, you know? Just like some people start falling in love before other people, some people start falling in love after people. And it's all just about your journey and the people in your life and who you come across that I think is the biggest factor. But also, I live for Patty LaBelle being like, you know what? What I had was cute. I am on my self-love journey. You know, I need to love myself. But also, like, I want a man too. Like, it's just like, I yeah. I just think that it's so sweet that she has, she has the mindset of the best of both worlds about, you know, loving yourself and, mm-hmm. you know, really being involved in that. But also, like, you know, if I want me a boo, I'm going to get me a boo. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's one of those things that a lot of times we have this notion that, you know, you have to fall in love young and we romanticize things like high school sweethearts who fell in love and then have been in love ever since and they're in love till death do them part and it's not always the case there are times when a relationship ends it might not end when you're 20 or 30 or 40 it may end when you're 50 60 70 and that doesn't mean that you can't fall in love again it's all about putting yourself out there seeing what the world has for you and You know, when you put love out into the universe, you can receive love back. And it's all about focusing on loving yourself, loving, you know, having good friends in your life, which I also really appreciate how Patti LaBelle talked about. Like, yeah, you know, I'm still good friends with my ex and I Mm -hmm. love our relationship as good friends, but also like I'm interested in this and that. Like, I just think that a lot of times people don't communicate their needs or they don't, you know kind of think about things a little bit bigger and a little bit broader because love can be great love can be wonderful and i think that you should just let love happen when love happens don't put a timeline on it don't try to force it or rush it let it happen when it needs to happen because when it happens that's when you'll be ready yeah i agree um love can find you at any point in your life and in various forms. Um, falling in love is one of those things that you can never really plan for. I mean, sure, you can hope for it, you know, keep yourself open and receptive to it. But at the end of the day, falling in love is mostly like a game of chance. Um, it's a very hard thing to try to understand, but real love is something that, like you said, you can't really control no matter how much you try to. You can't force someone to truly love you and you can't force whatever divine force you believe in to send the person of your dreams to you. This is a lot of the reason why I've been trying to change my approach to love. See, I spent a lot of my teenage years waiting for love and desperately trying to find a person to be that special someone for me. Um, I was convinced that if I searched hard enough and kept waiting long enough that the person I was meant to be with would just come into my life and finally, finally, I'd have the thing I've dreamed of since I was a kid. And I remember having to psych myself up at the start of every new year, like, okay, it may not have happened last year, but it will definitely happen this year. This is the year. This is the year for me. This is my year. This is my year. And then the year came and I had to redouble my efforts and I remained single still. I was still single. But the next year will be your year. But the next year will be my year. And then it still wasn't my year. (laughs) So... Year after year, trying and trying over and over and over again until it dawned on me fairly recently, actually, that I've spent so much of my youth 
looking for a person to fall in love with that so many life experiences have passed me by. I was existing in the world, but I wasn't really living because I was always waiting for someone else to come into my life so I could finally start doing the things that I was too afraid to do on my own. I was so laser focused on the idea of finding someone that one day I woke up and discovered that bitch, I'm about to be in my late, in my mid twenties. Like I thought I was on pause until I realized just because I'm not living my life doesn't mean that life stops and waits for me, which brings me to my next point. Um, falling, in so, you know, falling in love with someone is great and all, that's cute. But if you don't fall in love with yourself first, you will never be happy. Um, it was a hard wait, reality. Wait, pause. You got to say that again. Oh, you one more time. The people in the back. People in the back. <laughs> Listen, if you don't fall in love with yourself first, you will never be happy. You know, that was a really, really hard reality that my therapist had to make me confront. I remember that I was going on and on and on about how the people in my life don't really love me the way that I wish they would and how difficult it is not to feel the love that seems so far out of reach for me, just going on and on. And my therapist looked up at me and she said, okay, well, what do you do for yourself that makes you feel loved? And I went on to explain, no, 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 wait, oh no, bitch, that's not the one that got me. No, no, I went to explain that I like being hugged, I like spending time with my friends, and that was why I was looking for a partner so that I could feel the other aspect of love that I was searching for. And then this bitch, <laughs> this bitch looked at me and she said, okay, but even if your family, your friends, and your partner showed you all the love that you were looking for, things happen. People have bad days, they go through difficult times, and they may not be able to show you the love that you need every single day. So what do you do for yourself in the times where someone might not be able to show you that love? And bitch, I didn't have no answer. I she was like, no what answer. do you do successfully? What do you do quickly? quickly. <laughs> and she read me. I She came for me, and I was like, uh, what's up? I was... I was like shook. I was shook. I didn't know what to say. I I had no answer for her. I recognized then that I spent so much of my life censoring that the feeling of love can only come from those who loved me. I never learned how to create a reservoir of love for myself so that no matter what, I'd always feel loved. I say all that to say that there is only one person that you are guaranteed to spend the rest of your life with, and that's yourself. When you fall in love with yourself, whether you find the one or not, you will always feel loved until your very last breath. But Daquan, I wanted to ask you, um, with all this you know, conversation about Patti LaBelle too, like, why do you think the society has this notion that older people can't date? I think it's because we only see love when it's young. Ooh. Like, I think, I think when, when you think about love, you think about the Disney princesses finding their romantic partner and they're like, what, teenagers, 20-year-olds, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. They're young. Very young. When you think about all of these different romantic comedies and movies, there's always this young you know, youthful, yeah. beautiful, gorgeous person falling in love with another young, beautiful, gorgeous <laughs> person. And it's like, you only get to see young love. And especially when it comes to like a lot of different queer things, you only see things about young queer people. Mm -hmm. Like how often do you see a queer love story period, like, let's be real, <laughs> but also a queer love story that is from four people who are older than, like, 50. Like, I can't even name a single movie, but I can think of plenty of, you know, teenagers coming out and falling in love and finding mm -hmm. a boyfriend, those coming-of-age love stories, all of this and that, because as a society, we really romanticize that period from, like, I would say 16 to like 22, 25. 23. Oh, 23. Yeah, 25. you're right. Yeah, 23. 
somewhere in that era where it's like yeah. you're in high school, you have the high school sweethearts, you have the college sweethearts, mm -hmm. you have, you know, you're young and partying, but you find the one that like stops you from being like this party person and like <laughs> settle down. It's yeah. like it's very rinse and repeat with these stories. And I think especially when it comes to older women, yeah. we don't get to see older women falling in love. Like you see plenty of old guys who find a young girlfriend and that's just Very like young. normalcy. Very yeah. young. Like <laughs> scary, scarily Very young. young. That's, that's a conversation for a different day. But <laughs> I think that we have this kind of normalcy with older men seeking out love. And we don't have that kind of, you know, normalcy with older women to seek out love. And so I think that it's one of these things that as a society, we should just like, like you said, fall in love when love happens. Love yeah. is going to happen regardless. But I do like the idea of falling in love with yourself. And I love yeah. how that your therapist checked you. Read me. Read for Phil. Phil. The library was open. Was open. <laughs> Because Reading I think sometimes we need that. <laughs> right. Sometimes we need that check. Sometimes yeah. we need that reality check of like, what do you do to love yourself? Because you have one body. You are going to be in that body with yourself for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, you know, partners can come and go. They mm -hmm. could have their off days. They could die. You know, yeah. just to be, you know, it's a little more... More to but think it's the about, truth. but it's, the it's truth. true. Yeah. You know, partners they may die, die and like, yeah, yeah. And so you have to think about what would I do to show myself love if the person I love is no longer with me for whatever reason, and make sure that you're good with loving yourself. Yeah, and I think it's also ageism too. Like, mm -hmm. absolutely. <laughs> like, people think that when you reach a certain age, you just hang up your libido, hang up your heart. And you just sit in a rocking chair until you just wither away and die. And <laughs> that's just knit some clothing. <laughs> you knitting shit. After a certain age, life is over. It's a <laughs> you're just waiting to die. <laughs> and I think that so many TV shows and movies and books, you know, often show people who are in their golden years as being recluse from society or no longer an active participant in the world around them. That's why I really appreciated the show Golden Girls growing up, because it was the first time that I saw older people doing all the same things that young people were doing. Older people don't just date. They have sex. They get their back cracked. Like, they still have dreams and plans and goals and things they're trying to meet. Older people can still be very attuned and still very welcoming to the changes in our world and want to be a part of them. I think that society gives old people a bad rap because the idea of aging or even looking older is frowned upon. I think we talked about this before on another on another show, but it's all about hanging on to your youth with every fiber of your being because without it, society doesn't value you as much. This stems from the fact that I think that we live in a very materialistic world. Everybody wants the shiny newest edition of something because newness is innovative, fresh, and exciting. And somehow we've placed those same expectations on people as well. So like you're getting wrinkles, get a facelift. You know, your hair is turning gray, dye it black. You know, body parts are sagging, get them snatched, pulled, and tightened. And while there isn't anything wrong with people who want to do those things, I do think that when we break down the reasoning behind why people do it, it all comes back to the fact that society has turned aging into something to be feared rather than celebrated. But what do you think about that, Daquan? I completely agree. Even if we think about a lot of the, like, misogynistic, oh, she's not in her prime anymore. Like, there was just, you know, Don Lemon who said Nikki Haley is running for president, but she's not in her prime. And the co-host was like, prime for what? Having children? <laughs> and I yeah. think that, you know, even in this conversation with, you know, being too old for love, quote unquote, a lot of people think you can be too old for love because it's like, oh, well, like, you can't have a kid anymore. So, like, what's the point? What This love is not productive. And it's like, love does not have to be productive in order to be love. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in general, like, 
like you said, we have this notion of that aging is this thing that we need to avoid. And that even in like older men who date, they're dating younger women because they mm -hmm. don't want to date somebody their own age because they don't want to deal with somebody who has age, who is out of their prime, quote unquote. And so I think that as a society, there's so many icks that I have with society. And one is definitely <laughs> just how you can't have a single wrinkle. You got to get the Botox. You got to get the facelift. The fillers. You the yeah. skin under here. You got to get that lifted as well. You got to get rid of the crow's feet. You got to mm -hmm. get rid of the smile lines. And it's like, even like as a makeup person, like you think about, oh, well, like I have these wrinkles here. I let me put some concealer and like, you know, powder it. So those lines disappear. Or let me put some concealer here. So the smile lines go away. And so it's, literally seeped into like every part Everything. of our society this ageism and this outdated notion that you can't do anything other than just wait for death after a certain age <laughs> yeah a recent wave of toxic masculinity and the myth of the emasculated black man has been resurfacing across social media following two magazine covers one being the Ebony Magazine Valentine's Day cover featuring actor Jonathan Majors wearing a long pink feathered shawl and colorful denim pants boots. And the second one being the Vogue cover featuring Grammy award-winning artist and beauty mogul Rihanna, rapper and producer ASAP Rocky and their child together. Unsurprisingly, the Hoteps came out of the woodwork to spew their disgust at these covers, such as one who tweeted, quote, did he come out the closet? Otherwise, y'all wrong for this picture. Stop feminizing our Black men. We don't approve of this, end quote. One Twitter user even created a diagram analyzing the Vogue <laughs> cover, claiming that it showcases ASAP Rocky as a, quote, submissive, nurturing, feminine man, end quotes. Now, We've talked about the myth of the emasculation of the black man before, but Andre, do you think <laughs> the black community and more specifically black men will ever be released from the chokehold that is toxic masculinity? Unfortunately, I don't think so. Not as long as patriarchy exists. I mean, there are still men today growing up who firmly believe that having basic fucking hygiene, like washing your ass, is gay. <laughs> so, so if that's the starting point, day like that's the starting point, Daquan. Bitch, we have a long way to go. But what I do hope is that the opposition to toxic masculinity keeps getting louder. I'm hoping that more of the Black community can unlearn the idea that your supposed manhood can be taken from you. The only one who has the power to take away your manliness, whatever the hell that's supposed to be, is yourself. People really don't understand just how powerful self-confidence truly is. If you know yourself, and I mean really know yourself and are comfortable with who you are, nothing that anyone says will make you doubt who you are. Toxic masculinity requires participation to be upheld. People can say whatever the fuck they want to say about, you know, what you say, how you dress, how you act, but you control what you choose to take in and how you react to those comments. Once you learn that you have the power toxic masculinity loses its hold over you. You have to be a willing participant most of the time for it to take any real effect. You know, when I was in elementary, in like middle school, I used to purposefully deepen my voice, modified how I walked and how I acted because I'm a really, I talk a lot with my hands um, and even tried to force myself to be the man that society told me I was supposed to be. And every single day that I followed in the ways of toxic masculinity to fit in, I was fucking miserable. Uh, very, very much so. It wasn't until I couldn't 
keep living like that, that I decided no more and I stepped into my truth. And despite the pushback, despite the wayward glances and the homophobia I've been receiving, um, I've stood my ground to remain true to who I am. If you want to be authentically yourself, if you want to enjoy the things that make you happy and live the life you've always wanted to live, whatever that may be, it starts with learning how to unlearn the fuckery that is the isms. But Daquan, what do you think? I mean, would the black men ever be released from that? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> no. Next question. I, think, I think that this uh, <laughs> the conversation about you you can't save all your people is very real. Very like, bad. You have to accept that there are some people, some black men who will always, always show toxic masculinity. These anthropologists are just like, oh, coming up with all of these different conspiracies. And I have to go back to the fact that this man created a whole diagram. Like he was like creating all types of lines and be like, look at the angle he's look at pointing <laughs> towards her and she's going forward. Why MX plus B square? And the baby has this soft feminine face and the angle of the photo, you know, blocks his <laughs> crotch so it's cock shaming him. And it's like, you have all of this time. But you can't find the time to wash your ass. You had all of this time, but you can't invest in a skincare routine to remove all that ash from your face. You had all this time, but like, do you have a job? Do you have a hobby? Do you have anything going on? But because that was absolutely ridiculous. Like when Wild. I saw it, I was like, I know somebody did not spend. Uh, probably hours mm -hmm. analyzing this and being like, you know what? I ate. This is my dissertation. This. this is my thesis. And it's like, as somebody that, you know, has researched a lot of things, that has a lot of, you know, experience in research and academia, I can tell you- an African-American studies degree, bitch. Period. I can tell you that mm, you're you're not you're not passing. The assignment <laughs> did not pass. You did not understand the assignment at all. And in fact, I'm giving you an F for the chorus because this is uh, an abomination. But I think that you know, like you said, as long as there's misogyny, as long as yeah. there's misogynoir, as long as the patriarchy is still has our society in chains and shackles. There will always be toxic masculinity. There will always be, you know, men, you know, thinking that they are the top of the game and anything else. A woman being too much of a leader is bad. The woman needs to be in her place in the house yeah. taking care of the kids. Bullshit. And they see ASAP Rocky holding his child as a bad thing. Girl, it's also just like, you know, I'm also just frustrated because it's like, Mind your business. Mind like, your fucking business. Like, I, I have to ask you, Andre, why do you think so many Black men are afraid of other Black men expressing their quote-unquote femininity? You know, I think that the patriarchy has made it so that masculinity is always associated with strength and femininity is always associated with weakness. For many men, the idea of being feminine is not just a show of weakness, but almost like a desecration of some sacred manhood. They are flabbergasted that anyone who is born male would not want to maximize on everything that being raised as a man comes with. So when they see any man displaying anything that could be perceived as femininity, they don't see it as just a personal choice for that man. To them, it feels like a reflection on all men. It's even worse in Black communities because like all marginalized communities, we are not seen as individuals by white society. Each of us are seen as representatives of the entire community. Like where white men may have similar levels of irritation with feminine white men, 
it's not nearly as intense as it is in the Black community because that additional layer of race is a factor. Every Black person in the mainstream is being watched like a hawk by white society. The moment they fuck up or make a mistake, it automatically becomes the fault of the entire Black community versus a problem with that specific Black person. White people are seen as individuals capable of making mistakes that only reflect themselves rather than the entire white community. However, Black men in the mainstream do not share that same privilege. So that toxic masculinity is further amplified into a very unique mix of anger. Like some Black men are angry because they've internalized the patriarchy. But others are upset that they lack the individualism they crave in white society so that they are not lumped in, they're not lumped in with feminine Black men or gay Black men. And some, or maybe a lot, maybe a lot of them are projecting their own self-hate because they are unable to express their feminine side as openly as other Black men are. It can either be just one of these things or some dangerous combination of all three that create this hotep ideology that permeates the Black community so intensely. What about you, Daquan? Why do you think? I agree. I think that it's it's a lot going on at the same time <laughs> you know, yeah. that causes this. Yeah. It's because of the, you know, the representation that you said before that black people are often seen as a monolith. And so yeah. people think, oh, if this is how black men are being rep you know, represented, then this is being reflected on all black men. And it's like if you don't like how black men are being represented, how about you get off the couch, take a shower, <laughs> wash your ass, and go out and do something notable. Go out and, you know, have some achievements. You know, cre create the representation that you so desired <laughs> by working at somewhere. <laughs> you know, I think having a job, having a job, being good at that job. You know, if you think Hollywood emasculates all of these people, how about you get good at, you know, get good at rapping and be a rapper and not just, you know, girl, I. I'm not going to say that. That's that's too. I can't. I can't be too shady today. <laughs> Dick Watson, I can't go there. I can't go. That's too far. I can't go too there. Far, but, you know, just you do you, and not worry <laughs> about other people. And I think that it comes from like this almost like hazing culture of I've dealt with all of this trauma, even so though they're not too. really acknowledging the trauma, but they've dealt with all of this trauma. They've repressed all of this. They've built this macho alpha yeah. you know manly man personality and so everybody else has to do it because i did it and if mm -hmm. everybody else isn't doing it then you know there's obviously something wrong with them and it's like no just everybody doesn't want to be like you <laughs> like you can do you do you but do you boo. don't let what you do hurt other people now the table is always hot with current events and social issues but sometimes the heat can get a little intense. Let's turn the temp down, take a breather, and get into this week's topic, cool down. Andre, what do you have for us this week? So, Daquan, I wanted to ask, do you think that money can buy happiness? You know, I don't think this is the usual answer that you get from a lot of people. But I'm going to say, absolutely. Money can absolutely buy happiness. I think a lot of the times people think about this question and they just think about, oh, well, like money buys you these material things and those material things don't really make you yeah. happy. And it's like money can buy a lot more than just material things. Yep. Money can buy experiences. Money can buy comfort and safety. Money can buy just money can do a lot. Uh, money can do so much because <laughs> let's be real, this world is ran by money. So if yeah. you want to have a life, you have to be able to spend some money. And 
you know, all of that is to say that's not to say that if you don't have money that you can't have happiness, happiness because yeah. there are plenty of people who find happiness in so many different things, you know, family time, you know, all of these different little things that money doesn't buy or money isn't able to buy. But to say that money cannot buy happiness, I think is a little misguided. It's a little foolish, if I'm being honest, because we have to be real. There's so much in this world that can provide you happiness. And I think a lot of times people like to think about anything money can buy. Oh, that's fleeting happiness. That's like temporary. That's not true happiness. And who are we to police what is happiness for somebody else? Somebody, an experience traveling across the world, meeting different people, spending time with their loved one because they can take time off of work to go on vacation, you know, being able to have an experience with your children, bring them to Disney World, see their faces light up at the performers. All of those things are moments that are magical and make people happy and it's you know it's foolish to think that that is not true happiness just because money bought it so i think that money can absolutely buy happiness because it buys a lot of different things and happiness looks different for other people so what happiness is for you may not be something that money can buy but for other people oh money can definitely buy it you know, I think this is a little bit of behind the scenes tea, y'all. We do not like rehearse what we're going to say to each other on the show. Like we go through our topics, but we don't actually rehearse what we're going to say to each other. And I think it's so funny how we are like on the same fucking wavelength. We see each I other. cannot, bitch, you took all of what I was about to say. I'm going to say what I was going to say, but damn, Daquan, bitch. We're here. It's like, we're right here with it because I, I'm the exact same way. Like, I've come a long way on this question. Like, I used to believe the same thing way back when that money couldn't buy happiness. You know, but that's not true. Like, money, money can't create happiness, but it sure mm -hmm. as shit can make it easier to gain access to what makes you happy. You know, for instance, money can't fix your mental health issues, but it can pay for the therapists and the medications that you might need to repair those issues, which in turn can make you happy. Having more money won't erase your problems, but it can provide you with the ability to create the opportunities you need to solve them. In this capitalist society that we live in, a lot of issues that many of us are dealing with are oftentimes related to the lack of resources that you would need money to buy. Like, like Daquan was saying, you know, if you're feeling sick and you have money, there's no fear of going to the doctor because you can afford it. If you're feeling depressed and you have money, you don't have to worry about a therapy bill or medications because you can afford it. And if you need some time to recharge and you have money, you can just fly off somewhere, go on a cruise, take time off. Why? Because you can afford it. Many people can't do that. And because of those extra stressors, which is bound to make it more difficult to find happiness, it's not saying, once again, like Daquan said, it's not impossible to find happiness without having money, but it's definitely a lot harder when you're not very well off or wealthy. Like, but Daquan, you had to steal my, you had to steal my whole damn, my whole damn, all of my notes. The whole, the you know, we're here with each other. But I also think, you know, I'm gonna have to, you know, step into my red thread room and go ahead, conspiracy bitch. theory hat on. But I also think a lot of this is just because rich people don't want other people to be rich. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of this notion that, you know, money can't buy happiness is so that we don't want the money that they, that they have. have. They're always talking about, oh, yes, I'm rich, but, like, it's not all what it's cracked up to be. Like, I I go through struggles, too. Like, how am I going to decide which bathroom out of my 20 bathrooms to use in the morning? What about, it's so hard going into my walk-in closet of a hundred different pairs of shoes and picking one out? Like, it's so uh -oh. difficult. I just mimosa on this. It keeps falling every time I get on my crew, on my, on right. my private yacht. It's like, 
I, I, I just feel, and you know, this may be conspiracy theory, but I just feel that it comes from rich people wanting to say, hey, money isn't all that's cracked up to be. You shouldn't aspire to having my money because they want to hoard their wealth and keep it in their family and keep their happiness. Yeah. And I think also when we look at too, like how people view um, money in like when we were going through the pandemic and stuff and like the celebrities like, oh, we're in the same boat, guys. We're in the same boat as they're sitting in their pool, lounging no, about with their personal chefs. <laughs> like, ma'am, this is not the same thing. Like, oh my God, here we go. I haven't worked since last year. Yes, ma'am, but you have over $500,000 in savings and shit. And you have, oh, I have a couple million dollars. I just have a, here we go, a small loan of a million dollars. And it's like, there'll be like, oh, social distancing is so hard. Like, ma'am, your house is so big, your entire family can social distance in your house. In your house, literally. Y'all can literally, y'all have your own wings sometimes. Like, right. So yeah, it's just, it's very irritating when we think about that. Like, it's like a lot of the problems that we deal with on a regular basis can be fixed if we had more money. It's sad. It's unfortunate that that's how our society is kind of made, but it's like, just even simply saying, like, not having to worry about having to pay your bills, not having mm -hmm. to worry about, you know, rent every month, not having some people who are living check to check. You know, what they say, right. I think there was a, I think there's a quote that goes like, most people are like one, uh, one missed paycheck away from pop. What is it? How does it go? Yeah, everybody, most people are one paycheck away from poverty. Exactly. So it's like, you're one bad day away from losing everything. So it's like, we're not, it's not this, we're not in the same boat. We're not in the same boat. If you lose your day, if you lose your job, if you, if you uh, get fired from your acting gig, you still have like hundreds of thousands of dollars saved up. But some people, some people, if they get fired from their job, that's it. They can't afford rent. They They're can't done. pay their student loan bills, their car notes, their insurance is gone. Like, there's so much. And I also have to add, you know, in this conversation, I don't think we should minimize what material happiness is. Like, yeah. I think especially when you come from, you know, more, you know, when you don't have it all, when you're not this, mm -hmm. you know, rich or upper middle class family and you're living more closer to paycheck to paycheck, a little extra money can mean the world. Like, I remember growing up, my dad would be off most Fridays, and he would come and pick me up from school, and he would take me to the dollar store and buy me one of these little goodie bags that were a dollar. And, like, sure, it's these material things, it's little snacks and toys and all of this stuff, but just that experience of, like, oh, my gosh, my dad is going to pick me up from school today, yeah, I don't have to ride yeah. the bus, he's going to take yeah. me to the dollar store and get me this bag, like... That's something that I look back fondly on from my childhood. And it's like, yes, it's only a dollar, but like that dollar meant a lot for me when I was a kid. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think that in like you said, not minimizing the material, it's like I mean, no one's no one's saying that um these objects make you know everybody happy but you know sometimes having nice things makes you feel a little bit happier like being able to say i have the car i've always dreamed of having i have the tv that i've always wanted and stuff like that so it's just the house the house that i've always wanted you know so i think that trying to pretend as if we're not like yes i, I get what people are trying to say the message Mm -hmm. But it's also like, yeah, you can't take it with you, but it's nice to have. It's right. nice to have. It's nice to say, damn, I've got the car I've always wanted. I've, I've got the house. I've got the, the phone I've always wanted. I've got this, you know, really fun thing. And I think that sometimes, too, especially as Black people, uh, more often than not, you know, we're often afraid of spending spending money on things, especially if you didn't grow up with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You're afraid of spending money on things that aren't necessary. And so, you know, for me... I recently purchased a uh, while back. I recently purchased like a Book of Shadows replica from the Charm TV show because it's my favorite TV show of all time. And I would have never guessed. Really, I don't. I, don't, I, I hardly ever talk about it. But <laughs> but I purchased it, and I was so scared because I was like, "Oh my god, I'm spending you know this amount of money on it." Like I'm like, "This is a you know you know X Y and Z." Like, "Oh my god," and I had to kind of really take to myself like, "No." This makes me happy. I I want this for me. I want it for me. And I'm so 
thankful that I did it because it makes me so happy every time I have it because it's a collectible. And so it's just like, oh, I have this thing that makes me happy. And it makes me, ha and it, it brings me this joy because it's something that I really care about. So I think that that's, you know, what you never know what those, um, what those material things, what meaning they have on them. Like you said before with your dad, it's like this little baggie might've been something that might, to somebody else, like, oh, this ain't, that's just a, a bag of, of shit. It's like, no, this is the thing that my dad gave me. I got to spend time with my dad. He did it, he did this for me because he loved me. He wanted to spend time with me. And that is just such a special moment, you know? Now, so many children grow up never knowing the full scope of what their culture has contributed to society and history. So it's time for a change. Let's take a pause, rewind, and remind the world just how we did it. <laughs> now, Althea Neil Gibson was born on August 25th, 1927 in Silver, South Carolina. Gibson blazed a new trail in the sport of tennis, winning some of the sport's biggest titles in the 1950s and broke racial barriers in professional golf as well. At a young age, Gibson moved with her family to Harlem, a neighborhood in the borough of New York City. Gibson's life at this time had its hardships. Her family struggled to make ends meet, living on public assistance for a time, and Gibson struggled in the classroom, often skipping school altogether. However, Gibson loved to play sports, especially paddle tennis, and she soon made a name for herself as a local paddle tennis champion. Her skills were eventually noticed by musician Buddy Walker, who invited her to play tennis on local courts. After winning several tournaments hosted by the local recreation department, Gibson was introduced to the Harlem River Tennis Courts in 1941. Incredibly, just a year after picking up a racket for the first time, she won a local tournament sponsored by the American Tennis Association, an African-American organization established to promote and sponsor tournaments for Black players. She picked up more two more ATA titles in 1944 and 1945. Then after losing one title in 1946, Gibson won 10 straight championships from 1947 to 1956. Amidst this winning streak, she made history as the first African-American tennis player to compete at both the U.S. National Championships in 1950 and Wimbledon in 1951. Black women. Motherfucking Black women! And can we talk about... In a year, a year, you went from picking up the racket to winning a championship. Bad bitch things. <laughs> we love to see it. We love to see it. In an article from BlackPast.org, we learn about Jacob Wheaton, who was born on February fourteenth, eighteen thirty-five, as a free African American. Wheaton moved to Hackerstown in the eighteen fifties and worked as a sexton then as a nurse during and after the Civil War. He is attributed with helping to combat the smallpox epidemic in 1863. Wheaton's home in Hagerstown, Maryland was the last stop on the Underground Railroad before crossing over to Pennsylvania. Jacob Wheaton was the first African-American to cast his vote in Maryland after the Civil War in the election for mayor of Hagerstown in the spring of 1868. And according to his obituary, he never missed an opportunity to cast his vote until his death. Wheaton helped establish the North Street School in 1888, which would provide a high school education in Hagerstown for colored children. The city of Hagerstown honored Jacob Wheaton with a burial as a Civil War veteran in the Rose Hill Cemetery in 1924. And on July 18, 1935, built a park named after Wheaton for the colored residential sector of the city. On September 21st, 2013, in celebration of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, Hagerstown renovated Wheaton's grave marker 
And on May 16th, 2015, Jacob Wheaton was honored as one of Hagerstown's most notable citizens in a new memorial named the Circle of Achievement. Baby, Black first all around. Like so many. <laughs> first Black person to vote in Hagerstown, Maryland. And it's and you heard how I never missed the opportunity to vote until he died. Right. He was like, I know how important this is. I've seen how hard we had to fight for this. I'm going to make sure I exercise my rights. Every chance I get until I'm no longer breathing. Period. Point blank and simple. Now, as always, thank you all so much for watching and keep the conversation going down in the comment box below. Don't forget to give this video a thumbs up. If, if you are listening to us on our podcast, please rate and review on whatever platform you are using. You can also follow our podcast on Instagram and TikTok at The Melanin Margin for updates on new content. And if you like to follow each of us, our handles are at Daquan M-U-E. And at Andre Talks a lot, baby. Now we will see you all next time on the Melanin Margin, where our goal is always to bring the marginalized to the spotlight in any way we can. Goodbye now.